So Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 14. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. Well, it's a great joy to be here and and sharing with you. And um, uh, 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 to be sharing with you uh, this uh, this next couple of weeks, and especially on this kind of topic, this uh, topic of, of, I guess, politics. What, What kind of view of politics should a Christian have? That's what we're getting at in this series. And you can see that I've entitled this series The Christian Revolution, and I've stolen the, the uh, slogans of the French Revolution, uh, Liberty, Equality and Fraternity. I'm not going to try and pronounce them in French. Cheekily stolen them from the, the slogans from uh, the French Revolution, but trying to recapture these for Christianity, for all these concepts, in fact, have their roots in Christian thinking in biblical thinking about the way human beings should live together. They're foundational political concepts for the way we have our political sphere today and yet without God, I would like to boldly claim, there can be no true liberty, equality or fraternity for human beings. Why does this matter? It's more than just asking us to consider carefully who we vote for, that we're going to have to do some of that towards the end of the year if the government makes it that far. There are three reasons that this is an important thing for you to consider. Firstly, to consider the concept of politics, the concepts that make up politics, is to consider the very nature of authority in human affairs and the very shape of our human life together. Who, put it boldly, who's in charge? There's no more human question than who is in charge. It's a fundamental human question with potentially dangerous consequences. The Christian gospel itself is making a political statement, a statement about who's in charge. And what's that statement? Jesus Christ is Lord. That's a power statement, isn't it? It's about authority. And this conditions everything a Christian will think about politics or ought to. That's the first one. The very nature of authority. The second one, the second reason you need to listen is political ideas have a tremendous power to shape the way millions of human beings think and live. Political ideas shape the way we live, millions of us. This is no less true in Australia than it is in North Korea. For example, the idea of human rights is a philosophical idea, endorsed not just by governments, it's not just a piece of bureaucratic mumbo-jumbo, it's something that you and I believe in, it's something the person on the street considers to be unalienably hers, no matter how hard it is to say. A third reason, for us to look at this series, is historical. You see, for more than a thousand years, power and authority were interpreted from a Christian point of view, rightly or wrongly. But we've reached a moment in in the history of what we loosely call the West, when a whole culture has fairly deliberately pulled away from its roots in the soil of Christianity and is determined to go it alone. Religious talk has been bracketed out of the public domain For example, when church leaders are shouted down by politicians and told to stick to talking about God within the Gothic sandstone walls of their cathedrals. But this is an act of colossal cultural amnesia. 
What the secularizers forget is that the foundational concepts of secular politics, notions like freedom, equality and the brotherhood, sisterhood of man, the family of man and woman, have their origins in Christian theology. They're Christian ideas where they are established in relation to the sovereign Lord and his mighty rule and his future eternal rule. Instead, nowadays we sing the secular hymn of John Lennon. It even comes up at Christmas, doesn't it? Imagine a world with no religion, with no hell below us, above us only sky, a brotherhood of man, a borderless globe and a godless heaven. For many people, however, secularism, secularism, this secularist vision, tastes very dry on the tongue. And there's a faint but still lingering memory that despite their flaws, the churches had something that we are now missing. And we see this that uh, even recently, even the atheists are starting to plant churches, you might notice. There's a kind of nostalgia for what Christianity gave the Western Western culture. The secularisation of authority and power began back in the 18th century in the Enlightenment, which found its political fulfilment in the revolutions of France and the United States. And so I'm taking as as our slogan, their slogan, liberty, equality, equality, fraternity. And imagine for a minute that we can recapture them for the Christian gospel. And so in doing so, we'll be right in the front lines of a war to the death over what it means to be a human being in the world in which we live. So that's what our task is over the next three weeks. I want to start, of course, with the great ideal of Western culture, which is liberty. So I'm up, up, I'm up to the point where it says, because I'm free, which uh, Kathy Freeman had tattooed on her arm. Consider the zoo. I don't know if you've been to the zoo lately. The zoo of today has changed radically from the zoo of my childhood, which wasn't quite the zoo of the 19th century. Has anyone here been to Sydney Boys High? That used to be, that used to be a, the zoo and what the cages are still there and of course they're, they're pits in the ground and cages with bars. And even in, in the 1970s when I first went to the zoos, uh, there used to be this kind of a pit into which they threw the lions, for instance a bear pit uh, and the gorillas were kind of in this tiny cage. And the, the, I remember vividly visiting the female elephant who at Taronga Zoo used to swing backwards and forwards with a kind of tick, a gigantic tick that she had. Something about being in the zoo had taken away her soul. Now today, at huge cost, the zoo has enclosures and displays with no cages and pits in an attempt to give the impression of nature and freedom. Now why? Why is that? I think it's because not so much about the animal, it's not so much about the animals, it's more about us. Visitors to zoos couldn't stomach what a previous generation could. We find going to zoos with animals in cages nauseating because we can't imagine anything worse than living in a cage ourselves. After all, how do we punish our criminals? What do we do to them? By removing the most precious thing we think they have, their liberty. Now, individual autonomy, self-rule, is the central feature of early 21st century life. According to the incontrovertible doctrines of political theory, freedom is the condition most natural to human beings. According to the Declaration of the Rights of Man, the 26th of August, 1789, at the dawn of the French Revolution, men are born and remain free. It's something that's inherent to us, say these declarations. This liberty is, they say, inalienable. You can't take it away from them. It's basic and it's profound. The only problem is 
as Rousseau explained, although man is born free, everywhere he is in chains. The goal of human being must then to be to, to aspire to the liberty that is our birthright, to seize the freedom that really we should have by, by nature. As one of the most famous philosophers of our time once said, they may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. That's Mel Gibson, by the way. <laughs> it's a powerful idea. And you know, it's a good one too. Don't get me wrong. An idea, this idea is an idea of such power that it evokes for us the glorious stories of the overthrow of tyrants and empires, the fight against slavery and colonialism, and the pursuit of the rights of, of women and of workers. The freedom of the individual has been a cause worth fighting for. But whatever the glories of its past causes, the ideal of individual freedom has become debased. Our profits of freedom now are the entertainment industry and the engines of global commerce. Our age is marked by egotism and hedonism, a permanent adolescence, in other words. We fear entanglements. What freedom now means is that you don't RSVP to a party in case a better offer comes in, let alone commit to marriage and children or other such entanglements. Individual freedom has now been reduced to sex and shopping, the unbridled consumption of people and things, the quest for the perfect zipless orgasm and the best pair of shoes. We, as more than one sociologist has pointed out, we are now what we consume. I shop, we say, therefore I am. The Gruen transfer, I think, is the most psychologically real thing on television and it's a dark look into what freedom now means for human beings in 21st century Australia. We have become atomised. The excesses of the sexual revolution, by fracturing the family apart, removed the last social barrier protecting the individual from the market. With individual freedom has come the freedom, well, to be alone. But while this isolation is loathed by most people, we actually don't like loneliness, we're condemned to live the atomised, separated life, defined as a unit of consumption and production. Every home has become a walled city, erected to protect our private freedoms, but also serving to isolate us from the communities that can enrich our lives. In every, uh, in every uh, statistical uh, survey, uh, community engagement in the 21st century is down on what it was, say, 30 or 40 years ago. So that was atomised, now I'm up to domination. Because there's another aspect of this freedom that uh, often lies hidden, that our freedom too often comes at the expense of the freedom of others. That when we seek freedom, we, need to, we seek freedom and it often means that others are not free. Securing our personal liberties has meant the enslavement of others. The cry of freedom of our society has in fact been a will to power, a power grab. The project of freedom has, always, has actually in fact been a project of exploitative domination. Now this happens in two ways and they're very familiar to us. First of all, the first world has grown fat on the growing impoverishment of the third world. Is this too loud now? It's all good? Right. So we've grown fat on the impoverishment of the third world. This is very familiar to us, isn't it, from, uh, from our study of economics. The Nike swoosh means self-expression, exhilarating athleticism and success to us, but it means virtual slavery to the children who make your running shoes for a pittance, graphically and tragically illustrated by the collapse of that garment factory only last week in Bangladesh. What does our freedom in the West mean? 
it means the collapse of that garment factory in the, in the, in the east. Second, our endless summer of consumption cannot possibly be sustained by the finite resources of the earth without some encroachment of a planetary winter. We're going to damage the environment. We, we cannot air condition our cars without, in the long run, making the world either a hothouse or a deep freeze. Our freedom is not for free. We can see that to hold unqualified freedom as the cardinal virtue then is deeply troublesome in the results that it produces. But there's an even deeper problem. To insist that a person is only truly free when every aspect of life becomes a matter of choice between all the alternatives that are in front of us is really to understand freedom as a rejection of being a creature, of being limited, of being finite. Choice, you see, is what makes us think we're gods. A man's got to know his limitations. And modern men and women have forgotten their limitations. Ultimate freedom is, we dream, the path to immortality. What a rude surprise to find the rug pulled out from under your feet. We think we can fly if we just put our underpants on the outside. And yet, we discover to our horrified surprise that the ground is rushing up fast to meet us. Now, what's the Bible got to say about all of this? Well, the idea of liberty, as we now understand it, is a kind of faint echo of the freedom of which the Bible speaks. And with, and with those echoes in mind, we turn to the Bible's account of the freedom of humanity. You might turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. I'm just going to uh, dip into that uh, passage of the Bible right at the beginning, of course. Because it sets up what human being is supposed to be, what we, our relationship is supposed to be to our own selves and to, and to God and to authority. And so Genesis chapter 2, you might remember that, uh, that foundational story, does not see the freedom of human beings in moral terms, but principally they're given freedom as the agents of God for a task, aren't they? To fill and to till, to name and to claim, to, to bring the creation to its potential and to offer it back to its, creation, to, to its creator as a sacrifice of praise, to enjoy it and experience it, to bring it to fruition. Their freedom was a relative freedom, a freedom relative to the absolute freedom of God, who in his freedom chose to create the heavens and the earth. When we create, we don't create out of nothing, we create out of the stuff that's been created for us, don't we? Like the plasticine you give kids in preschool. They've got stuff, they make stuff, not out of nothing. But this is intriguing. Out of his sovereign freedom... The Lord God chose to make space for human beings to exercise their freedom. And so we see this in uh, verse 20 of chapter 2, uh, which is an intriguing little moment, isn't it, when God brings to Adam the animals. Why? To see what he would name them. I don't think it's kind of guess what's in God's head. Uh, is it a uh, lion? No, says God. No, no, no. Uh, try again. Begins with a G, ends with an E, two Fs. It's a uh, gaff. No, 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 not a gaff. It's a giraffe. Yes, well, well done, Adam. No, not, I don't think that kind of stupid game's going on. Here, God wants to see what Adam will do with his freedom. It's a remarkable privilege. It's being, it means being allowed the responsibility of seeing into the essence of things and seeing what it is and, and, and giving a label to it. And whatever Adam called the animal, that was its name. God did not decide beforehand the names. He let Adam choose. 
And back in verse 15, you'll notice, Adam and Eve were also freed for their task of tilling and, f- and keeping the ground, of so ordering the garden that it flourished and produced. And so they were to exercise freedom, not in domination and exploitation, but in tender dominion, realising the potential latent in the good, but not yet perfected world in which they'd been placed. And it seemed entirely right for Cain and Abel, later in Genesis chapter 4, to return with the produce of their efforts and offer them back as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. And they were also free to enjoy it, in verse 16 of chapter 2. They were free to eat of any tree in the garden, in any order, or not at all. They could pig out on apples and go nowhere near avocados, if that's what they so chose. And they were also free, in verses 22 and 24, for each other. Because that's the the kind of punchline of the story, isn't it? That they're not just made as isolated individuals, but they're made one for another. That human being is collective. It's social. We're no longer lonely. We're open in our nakedness in this story to relish the unity of our flesh and to share the task of filling the creation with people. Human freedom was always cooperative and social. But it was always limited too. In verse 17, what happens? They were limited, of course, by their physiology. Of course, like all the animals, the Adam and Eve could only be in one place at once. They were not omnipotent or omniscient. They were made of the dust of the ground. Unlike the one who made them, they could only create out of the stuff that he'd given them to create with. But knowing their limitations was their freedom. And their liberty was limited in another important way. They were not free to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God warns them as much as commands them, do not eat of it, for you will surely die if you do. Now, we know what happens. The decision of Adam and Eve to eat this fruit was not a march for freedom, it turns out, but a choice for chains. With the fall came new limits to human being. The creation has been subjected to, its, to futility, as Paul puts it. It's been shot through with decay. The ground is cursed. The earth no longer yields so readily to human touch. Our relationships are riddled with shame and anguish and the abusive domination of the, ma- of the female by the male. At the ultimate boundary of human freedom, the final crushing, at the ultimate boundary on human freedom, the final crushing blow to our egotism is death. Despite our fantasies, we cannot break free of the gravity or the gravity of death. We may go gentle into that dark night or even rage against the dying of the light. Whatever. Our destiny is unchanged. Death is now the termination of all decisions. And we're not free to change. We've lost the capacity to realise the potential within ourselves for doing what we are made to do. We are bound to the flesh, sold as slaves to sin, not even able to do the good we want to do. No amount of self-help can help. That's the myth of those reality TV shows, The the Biggest Loser, loser, which is my 10-year-old's favourite for some strange reason, that if you just discipline yourself, the real you will pop out of that vast you that's there in front of us. It did no good in the sweep of the Bible story to hold out the law that God gave as a strategy for freedom. The law was merely like arrows in a convict's uniform, pointing to our lack of freedom rather than giving us directions to escape. Now the true liberation of men and women had to wait 
for the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth. So up to the point where the free man. And how did the Son of God exercise his sovereign freedom? How did the second person of the Trinity, the one who we call the Son of God, exercise that? The one who, to whom all power was due? By voluntarily submitting to the restrictions and indignities of, a human, of human flesh, of living in a family, having a tongue and lips to learn a human language, having the need to sleep and to eat, flowing with hormones and blood, to face even the possibility of death. Now, as a man, he exercised the freedom of true human being. You think about his story. This is how he acted. He expressed authority without domination or exploitation. He expressed care. He offered his own body, in his own body, a sacrifice of praise to the Creator. In his absolute liberty, he emptied himself as Paul puts it, and in humility went to the cross there to bear the shame of it all, to freely give his life a ransom for many, not to demand the servitude of others, but to embrace slavery for others. He used his freedom and became in freedom a slave that others might be free to give his life a ransom for many. And this then becomes the opening for a new freedom for human beings, a new way of life for us. Release from the bleak destiny of sin and death into the new life that we have as as the children of God, to be the creatures we are truly made to be. So turn with me now to perhaps the greatest passage on freedom in the Bible, Galatians chapter 4 and 5. We read some of that uh, a little bit earlier. And in particular, picking it up from Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul explains that in belonging to Christ is not slavery or law or religious observance, but the freedom to love. Why has Christ set us free, does he say? For freedom Christ has set us free. In other words, for the purpose of embracing the freedom we were made for as God's creatures. Not to be gods like God, but to be Servants of God, as we were made to be. Uh, the people of God then are not a community framed by law, but moulded by the freedom of faith. Somehow though, you know, we grow to love our cages. Even hearing this news, we don't respond as we ought sometimes. It was hard for the Galatians, and this is the whole problem of the Galatian letter, isn't it? It was hard for them to accept that they had been released. It was easier to imagine staying in the apparent safety of the law, like the long-term inmate who commits a crime so will be put back in prison, where there at least are regular meals. Far more scary is the life of freedom, where you have to use your imaginative powers to go and love in a way that might cost you. Even circumcision, for for the Galatian Christians, seemed easier than freedom. This is what Paul says, as we heard earlier from Galatians 5, 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole commandment is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. Right, this is the core of the Christian life, isn't it? The freedom of the Spirit. A freedom that, like the freedom of the Father and the Son, is surprisingly exercised not in dominating people, not in getting stuff for yourself, not in expressing yourself, but in the costly service of others. As Martin Luther put it in the 16th century, a Christian 
is the most free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. So let's think then about the consequences of this new freedom in Christ for the church and for the world. And I'd love you to keep talking, I'd love to keep uh, probing and, and working out the consequences on this. And you can, you can uh, kind of ask me a question or make a comment on, on, uh, on Twitter and we can have a bit of a, an interchange about that or talk to me later. I'd love to kind of think this through further, the consequences for this freedom that's declared in the Christian gospel that returns us to the freedom for which we were made. And I've got two contexts in which this freedom ought to be worked out. Firstly, in the church. Secondly, in the world. So firstly, let's embrace and lead others in embracing this freedom for which we are set free. Let's not return to the dryness of the written code or replace it with otherworldly rules. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. The Galatian problem was not unique to them. We find rules far, far easier than freedom. People actually in the end beg for rules. Tell me what to do. The hardest sermons to preach are the ones where in the end you say, be free, as God called you to be free. The easiest ones I've noticed are the ones where you give people a list of do's and don'ts and at the end I say, thank you, I love that. But it's in freedom, to, to freedom that we have been called, to a freedom to express, uh, to express ourselves in the service of others. At all costs we must resist returning to those rules and instead move into the glorious freedom of God, keeping pace with the Spirit. You are free now to leave your sins behind and the pseudo-religious disciplines that never tamed them. And second, under the church heading, where we are to use that freedom in the costly but joyful love of others. That's what your life is like. That's what your li- the project of your life in Christ is that, to use your freedom, the joy of your freedom, in costly service of others. The service of God is, as Thomas Cramner put it in the 16th century again, it's perfect freedom. His service is perfect freedom. Because it's being who we are made to be. Make the practice of Christian freedom a powerful antidote to the atomization of the community outside, to the will to buy stuff that we see in the world. Practice love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against, which the, against these things there is no law. These are the works, the marks of freedom, aren't they? The hallmarks of freedom. These are the things the Spirit of God works in us for the sake of others and cannot be framed by any constitution, cannot be commanded by any government. As Luther put it again, here is the truly Christian life. Here is faith really working by love when a person applies himself with joy and love to the work of that freest servitude in which he serves others voluntarily and for naught himself abundantly satisfied in the fullness and riches of his own faith. That's something to live for. This is freedom that upholds relationships. It actually delves into relationships, doesn't it? It does not destroy them. It uses independence to foster interdependence. So I want to challenge you. How are you exercising your freedom to serve, your liberty to love. 
How is that a theme of your life in Christ? What about the world though? This understanding of freedom teaches us a great deal about how Christians should address the world and live in it, how we might speak to the kind of talk about politics that goes on in our community even today. It tells us that true freedom does not come from loosing the ties that binds us to others, but from embracing the tasks that God made human beings for in the first place, ordering, filling, naming the created order in advance of its transformation. And it tells us that true emancipation is impossible without transformation. Without the Spirit of God, there is no liberty, not truly. We must stand for people's freedom to serve God as they were made to do. To hear the voice of God and respond to it. Necessarily then, many of our aims will overlap with the kinds of uh, liberal governments that support the freedom of the individual and make it possible for the individual to express these freedoms in civic duty. The freedom of religion is a kind of basic political idea that Christians have bequeathed to the West. The idea that you are free to have a religion or none. We must uphold that freedom, express a delight in it, applaud it when we see it being upheld. That thoroughly Christian thought is actually at the basis of the notion of what a liberal society is, that we should be allowed freedom not solely for the purpose of self-expression, but to serve and to build the community. And perhaps we've got something to say to the community at that point. The freedom is not a good in and of itself. You need to ask not just freedom from, but freedom for. What is it for? What is it driven towards? What are you now free to do? As Paul says in Romans chapter 13, just government is part of God's work in this world. Working for the freedom of people under just government is surely a work with which he is pleased. The fight against slavery led by Christians in the 19th century was surely a fulfilment of their calling to use their freedom to serve God as he served others. God's people in our time have no lesser call. Have you heard it? What are you doing with your freedom under God to make sure that others experience freedom. But we must also say to the world that the freedom to which it aspires, an individual self-sufficiency, is neither possible nor good. Freedom is an ultimate aspiration results in disaster. It is not by the relentless drive to freedom that we human beings find ourselves. Human beings need God. The secular self is on its own. The Christian self is formed by intimacy with God in a Christian community. While the secular world is trying to be free of all talk about God, we will insist that to talk of freedom without God is meaningless. Well, I hope there's lots to talk about as a result of what I've said today, uh, but I'm going to pray now, uh, and especially pray in regard to what we've heard. Lord of all life, you bring us from darkness to light, from death to life, and from bondage to freedom by the resurrection of your only begotten Son. Enlighten us likewise by the splendour of your Holy Spirit and sanctify us wholly through the same Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Next week, equality.